Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show and you want to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or go to wordsforgranted.com, click on the contribute tab, and follow the link from there. Every little bit adds up, really. For just a buck a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. Not only that, but you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. The latest Patreon episode was posted last week, and it's sort of a continuation of the episode on the word church. I say sort of because it doesn't directly continue the narrative. Actually, it explores a couple of alternative etymologies of the word that sound more like conspiracy theories than credible hypotheses. The reason why I chose to release an episode on this unusual topic was to emphasize the fact that not all etymological work is good etymological work. Here's a clip of what the contributors are listening to. What it seems like to me is that the guy who wrote this article has never heard of homonyms, which, for those of you who may have forgotten, are words that are spelled the same but have different meanings. The mere suggestion that Noah Webster, A, secretly knew about the connection between church and the goddess Circe, and B, intentionally omitted the word Circe from his dictionary to spare his Christian readers of the reality that the word church is connected to a pagan magician is almost comical. This guy, Glenn Clay, provides no hard evidence supporting his claim. So, if that sounds interesting to you, you know what to do. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can do a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Al for his recent contribution. One more thing before we begin. I'd like to correct my pronunciation of the Hebrew word shedim from the last episode. I said something like shedim. Thanks to listener Charles for writing in with the correction. It had been a while since I mispronounced a word in a language that I don't speak, so it was only a matter of time before I returned to the tradition. Okay, enough with the house cleaning. Let's get on to today's episode, part five in an extended series on biblical etymology. Actually, it's a bit of cheating for me to include this episode in the biblical miniseries. Think of it as a semi-relevant intermission. We won't be engaging in any comparative religious or cultural studies or picking apart ancient Judeo-Christian texts. Instead, we'll be looking at the evolution of a single letter, the letter J. Of course, the letter J is significant to the Bible because it's the first letter in the name of one of its main players. You may have heard of him. It's... It's, you'll never guess, yeah, Jesus. Like I said, the main focus of this episode is going to be the evolution of the letter J, but I'm partly going to use it as a way of understanding the evolution of the J sound specifically in the name of Jesus. So that's how this will tie into the overall theme. 
I think a good entry point into this episode is an acronym that should be familiar to most Christians. INRI. I-N-R-I. Technically, INRI is more of an initialism than an acronym because INRI isn't a word unto itself, per se, but this distinction hardly matters because the words represented by the letters I-N-R-I aren't English words anyway. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, let me catch you up to speed. According to the Gospel of John, as Jesus was being crucified, his Roman executioners affixed a sign above his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This, of course, is an English phrase, and nobody spoke English in Judea during the first century CE, or for that matter, anywhere in the world. This sign above Jesus' head said the phrase in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. In depictions of the crucifixion in the Western world, this sign typically only says inri, which represents the Latin phrase Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum. Again, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus and Judeorum were the Latin words for Jesus and Jews, respectively, and as the acronym INRI suggests, both words begin with the letter I. Now, when you heard me say Iesus and Judeorum without seeing how they're spelled, if you didn't know any better, you might have assumed that they were spelled with Y as their first letter. Iesus, Judeorum. There's a consonantal Y sound in there, but the Latin alphabet did not have the letter Y. As it turns out, this Y sound is a product of that initial letter I being smushed up against another vowel sound. In Latin, the letter I represented the E sound, similar to the sound of I in the modern Romance languages. In the name Iesus, the initial I is followed by the letter E. In Latin, the letter E is pronounced A, again, similar to its descendant in the modern Romance languages. When you pronounce the E and A sounds quickly side by side, they kind of slur into one sound. E-A. 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 As you can hear, the E sound naturally produces a Y as it glides into the next vowel. The same thing happens in the word Judeorum, which again was the Latin word for Jews. Here, the Latin letter I is being pronounced next to the letter U, which in Latin was pronounced similar to our English U. So, Iudeorum. Say it fast enough, and it becomes Iudeorum. So, both Jesus and Iudeorum start with the letter I, and both Jesus and Jews, their modern English etymological descendants, start with the letter J. Is this a coincidence? Well, of course not. Today, we'll be learning how the letter J and the sounds associated with it directly evolved from the letter I. So, without further ado, let's take a look at this surprising evolution. Since J is ultimately descended from I, our story technically begins with the birth of I. 
I won't get too bogged down in the details, but I think a quick overview of the letter I will help give a wider context to this story. So, sometime around 1000 BCE, the Phoenicians, those famed seafaring Semitic-speaking peoples who lived in what are now parts of modern-day Israel, Lebanon, and Syria, invented the first alphabet. All modern alphabets, literally all of them, including our own, are in some way descended from this original one. It follows that most of our letters are also in some way descended from that original alphabet. So what was the Phoenician version of I, a letter that in English is variously associated with the vowels I, E, and I, depending on its contexts? The Phoenician letter that evolved into I was called Yud, and it had none of these associated sounds. It was a consonant, as a matter of fact, and it was pronounced something like Y, a la the English letter Y when it's used as a consonant. Around 900 BCE, the Hebrews, another Semitic-speaking group, borrowed the Phoenician alphabet and applied it to their own language. Although the Hebrew alphabet altered the shapes of the letters it borrowed from the Phoenicians, the names and sounds of those letters remained fairly consistent. Today, Hebrew still has the letter Yud, and it still represents the Y sound. This brief diversion into the Hebrew adaptation of the alphabet is significant to our perspective on this story because Yud is the initial letter in Yeshua and Yeduhim, that is, the Hebrew words for Jesus and Jews, respectively. More on these words in a moment. Because the Phoenicians were some of the ancient world's most vigorous international traders, as they traveled abroad, their alphabet began to spread. In around 800 BCE, their alphabet was adopted by the Greeks. Unlike Hebrew and Phoenician, Greek is not a Semitic language. It's an Indo-European language. Consequently, the Greek language had many sounds that the Phoenician language did not, and vice versa. So, the Greeks changed the sounds associated with some of the letters they borrowed. The letter Yod was one such letter. The Greeks renamed Yod Iota, often pronounced Iota in English, and they made it represent the E sound. They made a connection between the consonantal Y sound and the subtle y sound that occurs naturally at the end of the vowel e. Can you hear that? E. As you may know, iota is an English word meaning something small or insignificant, and it actually is a direct borrowing of the name of this Greek letter. Iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, so it developed this metaphorical meaning not only in English, but also within Greek itself. The English word jot, which means to write down something insignificant, was at one point a variant pronunciation of this same word iota. Iota and jot represent a rare instance where both I and J forms of a single root word simultaneously exist. Anyhow, back on track. Thanks to trading networks along the Mediterranean, the Greek alphabet was passed on to the Etruscans, an ancient civilization of people on the Italian peninsula. And from the Etruscans, the alphabet reached the Romans. The Romans called the letter E and pronounced it as such. 
Now, Christianity spread to Rome via the Hellenized Greek world. Consequently, the language of early Christianity was Greek. When the Greek language transliterated the Hebrew words Yeshua and Yeduhim, it used the letter iota as the first letter in these words. The Greek pronunciations of Yeshua and Yehudim were Yesus and Eudeus. This was because the Greek alphabet did not have an equivalent of the English letter Y. It represented this sound by having two separate vowels next to each other. When the Latin-speaking Roman world adapted these Hellenized Hebrew words, it mimicked the Greek spelling, but did so using its own alphabet. Consequently, Iesus and Iudeus became Iesus and Iudeorum, both of which began with the letter I. During the centuries leading up to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the pronunciation of Latin throughout the empire's geographically disparate territories had begun to diverge. However, the actual conventions of Latin spelling were slow to keep up with these changes. One of the most prominent inconsistencies between pronunciation and spelling concerned the letter I when it had this consonantal Y sound, generally when coming directly before another vowel. By the time Latin broke off into the Romance languages, this particular usage of I began to acquire different characteristics among different languages. In Old Spanish, this I was slurred to a H sound, and in Old French and Old Italian, it's slurred to a J sound. However, words containing these new sounds were still spelled with an I. For example, the Old Spanish word for justice, justicia, would have been spelled I-U-S-T-I-C-I-A. Its Old French cognate, justice, would have been spelled I-U-S-T-I-C-E. So far, our narrative has had very little to do with English. So, at this point, enter English. After the Norman-French conquest of England, French became the dominant language of the English aristocracy, and it began influencing the English language at large. Prior to this point in history, Old English did not have a J sound. In fact, all of the Germanic languages lack a native J sound. It's actually common for German speakers who are learning English to intuitively substitute the Y sound for the J sound. Anyway, after thousands of French loanwords began pouring into English, English suddenly acquired a J sound. However, neither language had the letter J yet. This sound was still represented somewhat arbitrarily by I. It's worth noting that by this time, French had also developed a J sound when the letter G preceded the vowels I and E. English also inherited this feature from French, and it still exists today in what is called the soft G. But G, of course, is not J. So where the heck did J come from? By the Middle Ages, Latin scribes had firmly established lowercase letters, something that did not exist in classical Latin. Some scribes gave the lowercase i a unique feature, a small curvy tail that turned leftward below the baseline. 
Obviously, I can't visually represent this letter here on an audio podcast, but if you use your imagination, it's easy to see how this variation of lowercase i could look like a lowercase j. This curvy lowercase i was originally a mere visual innovation. It had no impact on pronunciation. It could be used to represent both the vowel or consonant usage of i, and it was commonly used at the beginning and end of words. This handwriting convention spread from Latin to the Romance languages, and by the 15th century, this curvy variant of letter I was increasingly being associated with the consonantal pronunciations of I. The invention of the printing press in the 1470s was in large part responsible for distinguishing J and I as two separate letters with two separate sounds. Unlike, say, Microsoft Word, which has a whole slew of fonts and characters to choose from, the original printing machines had a limited number of letter boxes it could hold. What this meant is that every character had to have a specific purpose or it would have been wasting valuable space. Spanish was the first language that, through the spread of the printing press, standardized this curvy lowercase i as the letter j. Shortly after, it was given a capital equivalent. In Spanish, the name for J is Jota. Recall that Iota was the original Greek name for the letter I, so Jota literally means Iota, or the Iota pronounced with a sound. So, without a change in pronunciation, the spelling of Jesus, the Spanish word for Jesus, went from I-E-S-U-S, to the more familiar-looking J-E-S-U-S. Taking a cue from Spanish printers, the French language followed in suit. Earlier, I said that the French version of consonantal I was being pronounced with a J sound, which, at the time of 1066, when the Normans invaded England, was true. However, at this point in history, the French language had experienced a sound shift, that j sound had become more of a j sound, and that's the sound associated with the letter j in French today. However, since English borrowed the majority of its French words at the time when the j pronunciation was prevalent, many French-derived English words, such as justice, Jesus, juggle, and so on, preserve this older linguistic trend. Anyway, by the 16th century, J had become the standard letter for the French consonantal pronunciation of I. So, without a change in pronunciation, the spelling of Jésus, the French word for Jesus, went from I-E-S-U-S to J-E-S-U-S. As for Italian, the third of the major Romance languages, the shift from the consonantal I to J never caught on. And I'm not exactly sure why, because it too had been pronouncing this kind of I differently for centuries. Well, instead of adopting the letter J, Italian began using the letter G before words that had experienced this sound shift. This G functions the same way as soft G does in English. This is worth noting simply because it shows even though the Italian language did not adopt J, it did do something to represent this long-standing phonetic shift that had occurred. So, without a change in pronunciation, the spelling of Gesù, the Italian word for Jesus, went from I-E-S-U to G-E-S-U. 
In modern Italian, the letter J does exist in its alphabet, but it is primarily used for loan words of foreign origin. As a nod to the origin of letter J, it is called ilunga in Italian, which literally means elongated I. Now, on to English. Although the English language had possessed a consonantal I pronounced as J since the beginning of Middle English, it was slow to adapt the letter J as a letter unto its own to concretely represent this. Consequently, there existed many various spellings of words containing the J sound. Take the word majesty, for example. It is attested in Middle English as M-A-I-E-S-T-I-E, M-A-G-E-S-T-I-E, and M-A-J-E-S-T-Y, the last of which is, of course, the spelling we use today. In these three variants, we have the letters I, G, and J, all representing the J sound. In as late as the early 17th century, the era in which the King James Bible and works of Shakespeare were produced, using J as the letter for the J sound had still not caught on in English. In turn, the earliest editions of the King James Bible remarkably do not have the letter J. In it, the English name Jesus is unanimously spelled I-E-S-U-S, though it would have been pronounced basically the same way it is today. In Shakespeare's first folio, the letters J and I are used interchangeably and inconsistently, a representation of the personal preferences of the folio's various compilers. Obviously, in modern editions of these texts, the letter J is used in place of the archaic usages of I. However, by the mid-17th century, J did indeed become standardized in English, and it came to be used for all of the consonantal pronunciations of I. J's genetic relationship to the letter I can be glimpsed by its earlier name, Jai. That's right, J was originally called Jai. Similar in construction to the Spanish Jota, meaning H-Yota, Jai meant J-I as in the j-sounding i. But by the 19th century, its pronunciation had shifted to j, probably to help it rhyme better with the following letter k when sung in the ABC song. Although the letter j, or jai at this point, had a name of its own and was regularly appearing in print and handwriting, there was an initial resistance against including it in the alphabet as a letter unto itself. It seems like a silly debate to have nowadays, but some 18th century language purists, foremost among them Samuel Johnson, strongly argued against J's autonomy as a letter unto itself. In 1755, the British Samuel Johnson published the massively influential Dictionary of the English Language. It was the most comprehensive dictionary of its time, and in it, he alphabetizes his entries according to 24 not 26, letters. He omits V, whose controversial status as a standalone letter is a story for another time, and J. He uses the unique shape of the letter J to spell words with the J sound, including his own last name, but all words beginning with the letter J were listed under the letter I. So the words jam, jewel, immense, into, is, and jump to name a few arbitrary examples, 
would all have been grouped under the letter I, alphabetized in that very order. To the modern English speaker, this seems completely illogical, but that's how it was done. Due to the success of Johnson's Dictionary and the stature of his reputation, J was to remain as an outsider to the alphabet for almost another century. In 1828, the American Noah Webster published An American Dictionary of the English Language, and contrary to Samuel Johnson's work, Webster's Dictionary gave both J and V the status of independent letters. Webster's Dictionary was as influential in America as Johnson's was in Britain, so naturally, Webster's 26-letter alphabet became authoritative in the United States. British dictionaries published after Webster's still resisted to integrate J and V for a few more decades, but by the mid-19th century, for whatever reasons, opinions changed, and Britain authorized a 26-letter alphabet as well, a feat that only took about 350 years after the invention of the letter J. I don't know about you, but I found it quite surprising that the letter J was so young in the English language. I mean, we look at the alphabet and take its unchanging immortality for granted. But the alphabet, like the very words built from its parts, has changed over time too, and the story of the letter J is just about as strange as it gets. Alright, that's it for this one, guys. I hope you love the show. If you want to show your support, patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is your ticket. If Patreon isn't in your budget, you can still support the show. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. You can also tell a friend about the show, particularly a friend who doesn't know that they're interested in historical linguistics, but actually needs a little more historical linguistics in their life. I'm on Twitter at at wordsforgranted and Facebook as wordsforgranted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Did I mispronounce anything? Please let me know. Have a great day. I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.